the love of Jesus in me greets the love of Jesus in you and brings us together in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't know whether you noted in that introduction, but uh, uh, Tim said when he was a young man, I did this, obviously referring to me as an old man. That makes me even older now. <laughs> I came in rather uh, late yesterday afternoon, early evening, and I took a, a long walk uh, over the community, and I remembered with joy uh, those 10 years that I lived here, but I also remembered that that was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, so time flies. There's nothing more important, nothing more important than preaching the Word of God. And it doesn't matter who's preaching it, provided that they're preaching it under the power of the Spirit. And I pray that you'll pray that that's what I'll be doing. Uh, some of you who have known me for a while know that one of my favorite theologians is Charles Schutz, the artist who gave us peanut cartoons. That may tell you the kind of seminary president I was. <laughs> One of my favorite cartoons pictures Lucy. Lucy is the, the strong woman in that cartoon series, and she, she comes storming into the room and demands that Linus change the channels on the TV. And then she threatens with her fist if he doesn't. And Linus says, what, what makes you think you have the right to come in here and take over like that. And Lucy says, these five fingers, individually they are nothing. But when I curl them together like this, in a single unit, they form a weapon that is terrible to behold. <laughs> to which Linus responds, which channel do you want? <laughs> but after a moment, after a moment, Linus looks at his own hand and fingers and he says, why don't you get organized that way? <laughs> there are all sorts, all sorts of lessons in that exchange, uh, but there is a lesson that goes against it in terms of organization. Too many of us, too many of us think that the secret of effectiveness is simply to get organized. And that's purely a secular notion that we carry over into our spiritual life. And I almost fell into that snare as I was preparing for this sermon. I was tempted to title the sermon, How to Be a Person of God. Because we're all, we all want to know the, the how-to. Uh, and if we know the how-to, we think, uh, all will be well. And uh, so we turn, oftentimes, our Christian, our Christian walk into a, a mechanical, a mechanical response uh, that we simply walk one step at a time in a how-to fashion. But I resisted that temptation. So instead, I'm talking about not how to be, but being a person of God. And uh, 
I think you'll know there's a difference that's more than uh, subtle. I want you to get the setting of that scripture in mind. Peter was writing some people who were facing slander and persecution. Uh, they were Christians in dispersion. They were, they were exiled. And this was a, a kind of s a circular letter that was to be passed from one small group to another. And its purpose was to enable them to stand strong, to be fortified and continue steadfast in their Christian commitment. I want you to listen again to a portion of what Peter said. Once you were no people, but now you're God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this entire passage is rooted in the Old Testament concept of the covenant. And this particular verse of Peter can be seen as a fulfillment of Hosea's rendering of God's promise in Hosea 2.23. I will have mercy upon those who had not received mercy. And I will say to those who were not my people, thou art my people. And they will say, thou art my God. So Peter picked up on that, quoting Hosea almost verbatim. Once you were no people, but now you're God's people. Once you've not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And since he's so rooted in the Old Testament, Peter begins to apply title after title on this no people who had been loved as a redemptive being by God himself. He calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I believe the passage answers three important questions that I want you to consider this morning uh, if we're going to think about being persons of God. One, who are we? Two, what is our function? Three, where is our power? First of all, who are we? We, we need to get this straight. There's not a there's not a mainline church in this country that is not experiencing some sort of identity crisis these days. And my own denomination, the United Methodist Church, is experiencing a huge, almost overwhelming identity crisis. And while the presenting issues are the practice of homosexuality, ordination, and same-sex marriage, the core issue is how we understand how we understand, how we value, and how we interpret Scripture. We simply, we simply do not know who we are. We have strayed from our roots. We're confused in our mission. We're fearful about the future. And Peter is rather clear in telling us who we are. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. That phrase, God's own people, literally means a people of God's possession. And the King James Version translates it a peculiar people. There's a funny story that has to do with this. Uh, a woman heard the garbage truck early in the morning and she remembered that she had not put out the garbage the previous night. So uh, she was barely out of bed and her hair was rolled up in those ugly, prickly wire curlers. And she was in a shabby bathrobe. And her face was covered with a chalk-like white cream, a sight 
She went running out and called out to the driver, am I too late for the garbage? And he responded, no, hop right in, hop right in. <laughs> that's, uh, that's not the kind of peculiarity the scripture is talking about. The word peculiar comes from the Latin meaning a slave is private property. So we as Christians have a unique relationship as a church, as God's own people. We are God's possessions. Think about it. How long has it been? How long has it been since you were awe-stricken, awe-stricken by the realization that you, you are God's own person. How long has it been since the church of which you are a part even contemplated the fact that together we are God's people? Here's a powerful witness to what I'm talking about. I was uh, totally, totally washed out when I left that special session of the General Conference back in February. Though we uh, traditionalists won the vote for the traditional plan, I left St. Louis spiritually and emotionally depleted. After the traditional plan was affirmed by a majority vote, the conference deteriorated into a shouting match of anger, hateful accusations, clever debate and parliamentary procedure just to kill time in order that we might not be able to perfect the plan. So I was worn down and empty. Fortunately, a week after St. Louis, my wife and three couples from our church, Christ Church in Memphis, went to Cuba for a week. I wanted to explore what I'd been hearing concerning the revival that's going on there. I had visited Cuba a couple of times before, and I knew the revival was taking place, especially in the Methodist Church, but I was not prepared for the robust, the robust power of the Holy Spirit that is being demonstrated in that church. There were 37 missionaries in Cuba when Castro came to power in 1959. All of them left the country during the first few years. The Methodist churches, for the most part, were closed. Only two or three Methodist preachers were left. For many, many years, the church just held on, barely expressing herself, not, not visible at all in the public arena. But something happened. I, I wish I had time to tell you the whole story. About two decades ago, some young people, some young people were coming together to pray and to fast, and they began to experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Reluctantly, the bishop joined them, very reluctantly. The bishop joined this small group of young people, and it got him as well. And things began to happen. And because of their faithfulness and because of their prayerfulness, because of their willingness to sacrifice, because of their praying and fasting, the church today is growing dynamically. 
the government will not let them build churches, so they have house churches all over Cuba, small groups of people meeting in houses, usually in the house of a pastor. And my time there experiencing all that was really redemptive in the wake of St. Louis. Now, I share that to hopefully inspire and challenge you, but I really share it to make a, another point, to set the stage for a picture of irony. Irony. That is a challenging indication of where we are in the United Methodist Church and a picture of where we might be, a picture uh, that I'm praying for. The Methodist Church in Cuba is not a part of the United Methodist Church. It's, a, it's an independent church. It's a partner church with other Methodist churches around the world. The leader is a spirit-filled, spirit-guided person. Uh, he normally would have been at the annual conference, I mean the general conference, in February because these fraternal churches, usually their leaders, come and visit with us at our United Methodist General Conference. But he, he stayed at home that week. And the reason he stayed at home was that the communist government was pushing a legal, governmental redefinition of marriage. The present definition of marriage in Cuba is a Christian definition, a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. But the government is trying to change that and make it just a marriage between, or a relationship between any two persons. But the Methodist Church, with great courage, because the church is still under tremendous oppression in Cuba, under tremendous risk, the Methodist Church protested against the government. They put up posters everywhere. They even had demonstrations of one man and one woman being married. Do you get the picture? I had just come from St. Louis where some people in my church and a number of bishops in my church were trying to change the definition of marriage in the same way the communist government in Cuba was trying to change the bank. Uh, the government has not changed its position down in Cuba. We haven't changed ours yet. Are you getting the picture? It's clear to me, as a United Methodist Church here in the United States, we have lost our identity. Being a Christian, being a person of God, is not just another way of talking about being a good citizen or, or being a good American. It's not just a way of taking a good look at and talking about being a good church member. There's nothing bland or generic about it. We're talking about the definitive issue of life. What should be the distinctive thing about us? God's own people. Think about it. God's own people. Think about it and tremble. If that's who we are, then what is our function? Peter is so excited uh, about what he has to say 
that he almost stumbles over himself as he puts it down on paper. And he answers the question. Listen to him. You're a Trojan race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our identity and function all in one sentence. Our function to declare the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are witnesses. We're witnesses. And our identity and function, who we are and what our function is, is tied together and shaped by the nature of God whose people we are. Acts 15 has the story of uh, Paul and Barnabas witnessing to what uh, God is miraculous, miraculously doing among the Gentiles. And James uh, sought to interpret that for the folks. And he said, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The King James Version puts it, a people for his name. Our identity comes from God and our relationship to God. He has taken a people for himself, a people for his name. So who are we? God's own people. What is our function? To declare the wonderful deeds of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Who we are and what we do is inseparable. Uh, that reminds me again of one of Bishop Piero's practices down there in the Cuban church. Uh, when young persons come to him and talk about the fact that they're feeling called to ministry, the bishop says to him, okay, that's good, that's good. I want you to go back to your community and win three or four couples, eight or 10 people to Christ, and then come back and tell me about it. And when they come back and tell him about it, he makes them a missionary. That's the first stage of ministry, formal ministry in Cuba. He makes them a missionary. And he says, go back to those people and care for those people. And you and those people bring other people and you take care of them in the meantime. And that's the first step on their journey to become pastors. I'm intrigued by their seminary program down there. In fact, I hadn't talked to Tim about it. I won't change hours in a lot of ways. Anyway, they are engaged in a three-year program, but all the time, all the time, they're not here in Wilmore getting an education. They're out there on the streets and in the communities bringing people into their household witnessing to them about Christ, but they do get theological education and it takes three years. Uh, and then after three years, they are commissioned pastors, pastors. Listen, friends, that's the reason the revival is going on in Cuba. But great revival is going on all over the world. And for the most part, we're missing it in the mainline church of America. We are certainly missing it in my church, the United Methodist Church. Who are we? God's own people. What is our function to witness, 
to share the wonderful deeds. And then there is the third question, where is our power? Listen to verses 2 to 4 in the scripture this morning. Like newborn babes, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up to salvation, for you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Come to Christ the living stone, and be yourselves built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's our power. Jesus Christ, the living stone, builds us into a spiritual house. His spirit indwelling us is our constant source of power, which keeps us going and growing as God's people. One of the most astonishing passages of Scripture, I think, is recorded in the 14th chapter of John's Gospel. Jesus is talking about his coming death and resurrection, and he assures his disciples that he will send the Holy Spirit to comfort and guide and empower them. And then he gives this astonishing word promise. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. And what would he do when he went to the Father? He said he would send the Holy Spirit. Wow. Do you believe it? Greater things than I have done will you do. Let me, let me ask you a few questions. When was the last time? When was the last time you attempted something so great that you knew you would fail unless you were empowered by the Holy Spirit? When, when was the last time you, you heard God calling you walking in a particular way and going in a particular direction and you followed knowing that you would stumble and fall unless you were guided and upheld by the Holy Spirit? When was the last time the church, the congregation of which you are a part, looked out on the community in which you are and saw a need, uh, an unserved people group, and, and you looked at that and uh, you thought you couldn't do it, uh, you considered your resources and you didn't have the resources to do it, but you did it anyway. You did it anyway, knowing that unless God intervened and provided the supernatural power and resources of the Holy Spirit, you would fail. You see, we Christians, we Christians, and the church, we must always, we must always be attempting those things that we know we will fail miserably and fall flat on our faces unless the Holy Spirit comes with power. And the truth is, he does come with power. It happens. It happens in Cuba. It happens all over the place when people are faithful, when they act boldly, and when they follow God's will. And when they humbly trust that God is going to provide. Let me rehearse in closing. Being a person of God means hearing and responding to these questions. Who are we? God's own people. What is our function? To witness, 
to proclaim the wonderful deeds. And where is our power? Come to him, the living stone, and be yourselves built into a spiritual house. And he promises greater things than I have done will you do because I go to the Father. I, I charge you. I charge you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Believe it. Believe it and act on it. Amen.